Hey there, everyone. This is Denton. Hey, I just wanted to let you all know uh, a heads up about our discussion today. We will be talking, as we did last podcast, a little bit about the topic of sex. And so we would encourage you, if you're listening with children, um, we think that's great, but we would also encourage you, maybe pre-screen this before you allow them to listen to it. We don't say anything explicit, but we do know that these things can be sensitive and, and for certain ages. And so we would just encourage you, if you're a parent, be sure and pre-screen this. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Empires of the Future. Uh, it is good to have you all listening in with us again as we um, jump back into the book that we're looking at. If you are just joining us, um, then uh, welcome. And we've been making our way through a book uh, by Carl Truman, a book called Strange New World, and we're going to be jumping back into that today, looking at the next couple chapters of that. But uh, first of all, I just wanted to talk to you, Jackson, see how have you been, man. We It's been two weeks since we've been together. Right. Yeah. Um, great. We just had lunch with our friend Jared, and that was a good time, getting some Mexican food. I had the standard uh, chicken on the beach, and uh, you had something that was hotter for you than usual, right? I did. I had huevos rancheros. <laughs> Uh, and it was a little bit spicier than, than I was expecting or what I'm used to, a little above my, my spicy range, but I made it through. Um, but yeah, it was a good time. I really enjoyed our, getting to hang out with Jared. Jared's an old friend of mine that made me and Jared go way, way, way back. And so, uh, but not, not being here at First Southern anymore, um, for me, it's, it's really always a, a joy and, and fun to get to be with people that, uh, have kind of, I don't know, meant so much in my life. It kind of, it made me think, and I was thinking on the way over here even, uh, of just if I think back through my life and just all the all the people that the Lord has has blessed me with and put mm-hmm. into my life and I've had the privilege to, to know and be friends with. And um, from, from my time here at First Southern, I think about places that I've worked and all the friendships and relationships I've formed and uh, my time in Virginia when I interned in Virginia for two summers and just uh, now where I'm at uh, now at uh, Redeemer Man, it's just so cool to see how God has put so many people in in my life that have helped to form and shape me, um, helped to make me the self that I am. Oh yeah, uh, hey, and that you know, look, you—I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, but this is sort of our topic today. Yeah, uh, is community and how you get it. And one wonderful thing about the church uh, is the church is God's idea, and the church is uh, one of God's answers to community. Another is obviously family. Um, but that's where we're going to be living today. Uh, you know, where do you find community? Uh, and, and pretty much the, um, if you were to ask the question of what is, what is the casualty to expressive individualism? It is community. That's, uh, one of the things that we've lost, uh, makes me think about, you know, um, Back when I was a kid, I found it normal. Like my dad was in a softball league and they traveled and, and, you know, this was a a group of people that he just shared life with for periods. And those things uh, happened more. I mean, I remember the first time I went into what would be my high school, but it was when I was a kid and they had a volleyball league in there. And I went into this little gym smack in the middle of my old high school. And I just thought it was huge. You know, it felt enormous when I was a little kid. Um, But small towns, thankfully, uh, community I think persists a little more. I, I think that cities, uh, community is a struggle to whatever degree. Um, and so that's an important question, you know. It is. And, you know, you're even using the word community in a specific way, uh, which largely involves a large amount of immediacy. Uh, so uh, having strong community in that small town or at your high school or through these various means like a softball team, um, a lot of it 
that it, a lot of that kind of community is formed, but requires uh, a sense of we are right here with each other. We're connected to each other physically. Like we're, we're with each other. We're hanging out doing these kinds of things. Right. Um, and as we'll see from our discussion today, um, the, the word community is oftentimes thrown around in ways which because of the, the modern age that we live in, yeah. don't require so much immediacy, at least not physical mm-hmm. immediacy. So uh, the your community that you claim identity with might not be the people right around you or that you even see on a regular basis or maybe that you even see at all. Uh, but yet what we still find is that human beings have a way of and, and have a desire still for finding identity amongst a community. Uh, We are still communal beings and we need that. We desire that Uh, as much as we also desire our individuality and our freedom. Community is still a major aspect of, of what it means to be human. And we see that even as um, the way in which community is shaped and structured is changing. Yeah. Yeah. And I would encourage uh, anyone listening to watch for the difference between a community and say a network, uh, between a community and an acquaintance, um, because these are not the same things. And one of the things that I think we're struggling to deal with is uh, the simple fact that you can communicate with people across continents, across cultures, Mm -hmm. but that does not mean you have community with those people Mm -hmm. Um, because community is is embodied. Uh, community happens face to face and it happens. Um, unfortunately, we, I think have come around to this power of being able to say like, these are the things I want to share through something like a social media or even, even through, think about what things you are sharing and what you're not through a telephone call, which is an older way of communicating, but nobody knows what you look like. You could have a black eye and nobody knows it. And that power that we have has certain strengths and certain weaknesses. Your voice may be, able, may be able to carry from here to India, but that doesn't mean that that person relates to you completely or that you can then find comfort necessarily in them. Um, each of these bits of technology that we've developed have limits, mm-hmm. um, and we're pushing those limits, but how far can those limits be pushed? And what of what we are lacking is because we're relying too much on technology. Those are things that we're looking at today. Yeah. Yeah, and so here's what's kind of cool. So what we've been looking at in this book and how um, Carl Truman has laid it out thus far, he's basically, over the, over the first four chapters, been looking internally at how the self is formed mm-hmm. from an internal pers- perspective, a sort of psychological perspective of the self mm-hmm. and how it has become this, well, as he says in the books, the psychologized self. Yep. Um, and e- even in that, how... Uh, the sexualized self has become a portion of that. And it's been my kind of observation that now as we've moved on to chapter five and six, um, what we, what I think Carl Truman is doing here is he's shifted the focus in essence from the internal aspects of what shape our identity to the external aspects yeah. of what shape yeah. our identity. Because, because who we are um, is not strictly tied to our psychological being. And I don't think hardly anyone would agree with that. Everyone acknowledges the role that our environment that we that we live in mm-hmm. plays in the shaping of the self, right. uh, and so he he begins to dive into that and and looking at how it has developed. So let me ask you this, Jackson. So, um, say you were alive six hundred years ago, roughly, um, what would have been the major environmental factors that you knew and that helped to shape your identity? 
Um, so family would be huge, and as as family is still huge. Um, but then uh, geographic location. Um, so if, if this is 600 years ago that we're talking about, rather than me being born in uh, 1980, I'm born in uh, 1480. Yeah. Or. No, 1380. 1380. Yeah, yeah. math. I just agree I just with did, you, whatever you I said. I just did math. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, right. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 1970. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so so you have that. Um, and he brings a lot of this stuff up that if you were born, I mean, he was born in England. So he said his birth would determine if it was 600 years prior work, marriage. I mean, who, what range of people he could marry, uh, where one lived, uh, what church was available, um, death, and a whole host of other conditions, and we would not have been able to change that. And and mm-hmm. so we, uh, the fact that we can change our station to a degree is a lot of why, you know, people had the ideas that uh, that we have now, but look for a lot of recorded history, it just made no difference. Right. Uh, People had dreams. People have always had dreams mm-hmm. of, of some other way, but um, how practical are those dreams? Mm-hmm. And that's something I think we're still dealing with is uh, a lot of people have ideas of things they would like to change. Okay, but how practical is that? Is, yeah. uh, certain things have become a lot more practical. I mean, the way he frames this uh, is from a fixed world to a plastic world that we can reshape a lot of things now that we used to not be able to reshape. Um, but what can't we change? That's the question we're still asking. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. So if you, if you were born that, you know, 600 years ago, um, you would basically, you'd be born in a place and into a family and in probably to a livelihood that would define you. That would be the case for you for the rest of your life. You would not ever know any other place. You would not never know any other church. You would not ever know any other, um, any other occupation other than what you were born into. Right. Your world was essentially, as you said, it was very fixed. Yeah. Um, but now, as we've moved from 600 years into the present, what we've seen is technology and advancements being made to where no longer is that the case. For right. someone to be born in a place, uh, I would argue nowadays, it's very unlikely that that is the place where they will remain for the yeah. rest of their life, yeah. live and die. Yeah. And so there's been a dramatic shift between um, how we relate to our environment. It going from something that largely uh, lorded over us and was was um, not something that you were very easily going to overcome to now something that we basically hold in our hand. And it has just become an option for us now. Right. I mean, he phrases this by saying, uh, quote, our world features transportation, migration, education, social mobility, technology, science, and medicine all changing all the time. The modern cultural imagination sees the world as raw material to be shaped by the human will, end quote. And I have to say, look, it's not as if you and I are saying all this is bad. We sit here as two guys who are ministers in families that, None of my parents, neither of my parents, neither none of my grandparents were ministers. I mean, my grandpa uh, was a bricklayer. Um, my dad uh, worked in trades most of his life. And mm-hmm. I'm thankful to be able to uh, make choices according to what I think, you know, are my gifts and, and these sorts of things. But one challenge, I mean, um, 
that is really easy to see is so different is that 600 years ago, there was a lot more acceptance that there are limits that, that certain things cannot be changed. And we, in this day, we often run into a lot of, uh, one of two responses to that. Uh, one is sort of this endless, well, anything can change. I can be anything I want. And, um, and, and sort of a strange kind of refusal to acknowledge, like, look, no, in no reality was I ever going to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm five foot seven and I weigh 120 pounds and I have for the last, you know, 20 years. And it's like, that was not, that was not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I, I can run uh, distance as a, as a hobby. Uh, and I should, because that's, yeah. that makes sense with my build. Yeah. Uh, and, and we are literally, some of the points that we're running up to is like, well, what does my body have to determine about me? And it's like, well, actually, I mean. A fair amount. You know, we, I mean, the Bible reveals that we are uh, hybrid creatures. We are a combination of a body and a spirit that is all connected, that is completely intimately connected. And that, that is not only how we are now, that is our hope for eternity. That we'll be embodied forever. And that that's not something that we should um, seek to just endlessly remake. The answer is not to just go, well, I'll just come up with my best idea of what configuration this should be in. There are limits. Um, and frankly, uh, as a Christian, something that we learn to appreciate and accept is w- we are creatures. We, we have limits. And that's, uh, that is not only something that on the ground is being challenged, but one of the things if you uh, listen to sort of the technological masterminds like the Elon Musks and the Peter Thiels and the Jeff Bezos of the world, one of, I mean, some of the things that they are uh, seeking. I mean, I, I can't remember if I've mentioned this to you before, but you know, uh, Peter Thiel cycles out his blood, all of his blood from his body regularly because of uh, what he's read about cellular degeneration, that somehow you, if you just get new fresh blood and uh, it will keep you from aging. Uh, this wow. is one of the things that is happening uh, at, at when, when expense is not a concern, people are, are really working on this, yeah. but limits are a thing that at every level right now are sort of out. Mm-hmm. Limits are not, popular and they never were but the strange thing is that the other response there's there's the response to kind of go i don't care what the limits are but then there's this other weird response that i'm seeing right now which is like oh that limit is not even a real thing you know for instance this recent uh there's a, a hubbub for a while about the new sports illustrator where they just said well you know what big is beautiful being overweight is just as beautiful as anything else and yeah. it's just like well that's just not true yeah i, I mean that's it, it I'm not saying that there is only one type of uh, beautiful woman, but I, I really am just saying there, there is a standard of beauty and it coincides with uh, health in general. Um, and, and, and to live in a time when, when that is being put forth and it gets past the number of people that it gets past because it's like, look, in their heart, nobody actually believes that, quote, anything is beautiful. Uh, it's not. You know, yeah, strangely, by the way, all these women had nice teeth. Like there, there are plenty of things yeah. that it's just oh, like, yeah. like, there's plenty of things yeah. that it's like, well, y'all are not pushing that envelope. They all had a full head of hair. You know, like why aren't no half, acne. half of these yeah. uh, women have just like black teeth and, you know, kind of like just total yeah. falling apart. Like, well, cause that's not attractive. Oh, interesting. There is a standard of beauty. Uh, but we're just, we're struggling to know what to do given the walls that, I mean, we're beating our head against various walls right now and there's different responses to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We, we've moved from a place of uh, being bound and limited by our, our environment and sort of accepting and submitting to those limitations because we had no other option to now we've, we've over, overcome so many of those limitations that I think there's, I think there's a, a, maybe a sense of pride that has filled the heart of man to say, uh, 
basically at this point, limitations no longer exist. Yeah. And I refuse to accept yeah. limitations. And there's a, it's an interesting thing because I'm on the one hand going, man, I think the idea of pushing limits in certain cases. Um, now I'm not really talking about like with morality or things like that, but for example, with your environment, um, I think it's good to push the limits of letting your environment Lord over you to say, I will travel to this place. I mean, this is the whole yeah. um, mentality that, that has, has um, basically fostered uh, Western civilization. And, and whenever uh, my, people migrated from the, the coasts inland here in the United States to cultivate the land and things like that, this was a risk. This was something yeah. uh, where they were pushing back against these limitations. And I think that's a cool and great thing to do. Yeah. Um, but then you come to a point whenever we hear today, those are not the kind of limitations we're pushing. Mm -hmm. We're not challenging ourselves um, you know, to go and settle a new land, right. we're saying, I hate the idea that anyone, um, whether human or otherwise, would set any limitation on me out of a sort of belligerent uh, mentality. So there's a big difference between, between the two. Yeah. Um, and I think it's had an effect now, and, and where we see it is it overflows into like how people find their identity and how their, uh, they, their person, the self, is shaped. It is a self that is living in a plastic world, one that is malleable, that can be shaped however we desire it to be shaped right. with no limitations. And I mean, the difference is, look, if you're a Christian, then you believe that God gives the world significance, that you are in fact significant because he has decided so. And that's not based on any talent that you have, any ability that you have. It's not even based, your dignity is not even based on, uh, you know, whether or not you're conscious. I mean, you have dignity because you are made in the image of God. And that's very different than if, if you have moved so far away from that, that you think you give the world significance, that you determine what matters and, and what things have value. And you can somehow determine if you have value. Well, look, that's just a completely different place and, and, and a place that is uh, shifting sand. Yeah. Look, if you have value because you're good at making money, when you aren't making money, you will feel that you don't have value anymore. If you have value because you're attractive, well, then you, when you stop being as attractive, you will feel that you are losing value. Whatever you place your value in, that is something that can be taken away from you. And in fact, what we know, it will be taken away from you. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, everybody is diminishing. Right. That's is, part of what it is. Yeah. All is vanity. Right. That's what Everything falls apart and we're in that process and that's a hard and scary thing. Um, but, you know, look, I've been at a funeral this week. You've got to look that person who's laying in that casket. You got to look at them and go like, that'll be me one day. Yeah. And, and that's a part of the reality here. But yeah, am I dependent on maintaining all the things that I've, all these balls I've been juggling in the air? Or is there something higher than me that can give me significance? Well, great news. There is. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the, th that's the thing to cling to, not yeah. to your false ideas, like to your false, uh, fronts that, well, no, 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 I can give significance to things. I can determine what's, what matters. Uh, no, you can't, you right. just can't. Right. It's a fail. It's a project that will fail. I mean, if you try, just be honest with yourself about how it's going, it won't work. Right. That's right. So, so, um, Carl Truman in his book, he kind of then goes to, uh, to examine some of the ways in which people traditionally historically have rooted their identity how right. they've how they've found or, or designated who they are uh, and he lines out kind of three areas of, of traditional authority where mm -hmm. um, people used to root their identity but but are kind of failing or, or falling away at this point mm -hmm. uh, and the three that he points to are the church the family and the nation as mm -hmm. examples he, he doesn't 
consider these to be an exhaustive list, but as examples. Uh, and he points out how all three of these areas are kind of being chipped away as a sort of basis for identity, as having any sort of good foundation in, in the world around us in society, uh, and therefore are in decline as far as how people identify themselves. Um, and so, you know, for, for example, we see something like the rise in no-fault divorce mm-hmm. um, it, with regards to the family. And, you know, I know that there are going to be people that listen to this podcast who maybe know someone who is divorced who, or are divorced themselves. Um, and my, my goal in saying this is not to offend anyone who has gotten a divorce, but it is to say uh, what no-fault divorce has fostered nowadays is this mentality of, I am committed to this person, I am committed to this institution of marriage so long as I feel like it, or so long as it doesn't get too hard, or so long as uh, my my love for this person, this emotion yeah, still feelings, burns. Yeah. yeah, and so it largely comes down to, to based in feelings, and whenever something, anything, becomes based solely on our feelings, it has lost its foundation. Right. It is, as you said, seated on shifting sand. Um, where where no, no institution can last if right. that is the foundation that is built. Uh, and so you see family as an example of one that is kind of fading away and how that has happened. Right. And I, I've read quite a bit about um, marriage. It, it's really important for uh, anyone who has not looked into sort of the history of marriage to understand that pretty much the way without fail that we primarily view marriage now is as a means of self-fulfillment. We ask the question... Will this be the next level of sort of fulfillment for me? And then we go, ah, this marriage, it sounds like it might be. So then I will take that to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is not only is that um, wrong from a Christian viewpoint, that is not the way society as a whole has viewed marriage. Marriage has been typically viewed as uh, a haven for children to grow up, as a protective place where sex, which is a dangerous thing, Sex is a good thing, but it is a very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And so then marriage is the place where sexual fulfillment is supposed to happen. And then that sexual fulfillment is to be tied to childbirth. I mean, that has Mm -hmm. just been the way that that is the way until, as we've talked about, the birth control pill and other forms uh, of birth control came about. That is the way people viewed marriage because that was the only thing that could happen because of sex. Yeah. Uh, because of heterosexual sex. That's how babies come about. Right. And so, since we now tend to view uh, marriage as a means of self-fulfillment, we are losing the basic understanding of what marriage has been. And then you're asking the wrong questions. I mean, you, when you look at a marriage and you go, well, I'm not happy anymore, so why stay in it? It's like, well, that's not that's not the primary point. You are entering an institution given for your common good, mm-hmm. But given in a Christian context, look, a marriage that stays together is evidence of the work of God. That's why the book of Ephesians says a marriage is a statement about Christ and the church. A working marriage means two people who have died to themselves and are in a covenant with God saying, this is not about me. Yeah. This is about serving and about sacrifice and loving the way the Lord teaches. Because marriage in some ways is consistently dying to self. And there are stages of that. There are stages where that happens immediately. God gives amazing, God has an amazing way of working it out. The fact that you are very sexually charged as a young person drives you to each other, but then that very thing 
means children will come about and children are another level where God says, I want you to die to yourself because these children are going to need you to. They're going to need you to focus on them. And that will be to some degree at the detriment to yourself. But I want everybody to hear me to say, dying to yourself is not a bad thing. Dying to yourself means you are alive to others. And this is all evidence that you are alive to God. This is a thing that is so ultimately good for you. It's not good for us to live. I mean, if there's one thing that is happening right now that we're finding out, expressive individualism means never die to yourself. Focus on your own needs. Well, nobody's going to want to be around you if all you're focused on is your own needs. That's just a simple fact. You're not good for anybody else. If all, hear me, all that you are focused on is your own needs, your needs matter. But people who love you will put your needs before theirs. That's what love is. Mm -hmm. It is no good for us to walk around going, man, how, how is this not working? I'm seeking my own needs all the time and they're not being met. You're not meant to be some little planet where you expect the entire universe to just revolve around you. That's, right. that's not what we're meant to be. But that's, that's what expressive individualism trains you to think like, that that should be happening. Meanwhile, it's not. Yeah, it's just it's very harmful. And that's what we're seeing play out over and over right now. Yeah. And it's this kind of mentality that leads to the erosion of of any sort of commitment to institution or authority, because you see the same thing in the church. So you see the church Mm -hmm. uh, kind of losing any any sort of weight or um, or pull as far as an identity with a a specific church or, or institution. And a large part of why is because of this expressive individualism where people say, I'm going to this church. Uh, but as soon as something happens in this church that uh, goes against my grain, or as soon as this church starts saying things that rub me the wrong way, or as soon as a person does something mm-hmm. in this church that I don't like, uh, I'm out. Yep. Because uh, largely in the eyes of Western churchgoers, not exclusively, and certainly it's something we push against. Uh, I know you and I both do as pastors, but um, the mentality, though, largely is I am going to this church uh, for the service that I gain from right, it. That what my it needs that met and these sorts yes, of Yes, yes. I've got needs, and this church is meeting those needs. The moment the church isn't meeting these needs or right. the cost of having those needs met becomes too great in my eyes, I'm gone, and right. I'm going to go to another church or to no church. Right, um, and I mean, here's saying, what if it's good for you to serve in your giftedness? What if it's good for you to give? What if it's good for you to find a way to be of help to others? And if, that's, if your gift is teaching, I think you can understand how it feels wonderful to be useful. And to particularly be useful in the way that you are built to be useful. Yeah. There are people who take great joy in serving in a soup kitchen line. There are people who take great joy in just listening to others. There, there are all kinds of gifts, and you thrive when you're using those. I mean, and this is, this is something that God does uh, in all different kinds of ways, at all different kinds of levels. And we are just one of many kinds of creatures who thrive when we serve in our giftedness and not just sit and be served all day right right it's it's just not good for us but that's but this what that's what the culture is pushing though yep. is this individualism that leads to this kind of mentality and this is a mystery i mean it's like look if you miss this that's okay yeah. we all miss it we all in our sinful selves think like no no no. i think it would be great if i sat on the couch and play video games and somebody just brought me a bag of doritos every few hours like that that sounds like the way to live well yeah. look i can see how you would get there but it's not it's it right. may pose as life but that's not life right that's exactly right and so, you know, he kind of talks about uh, the nation state as well and sort of we see the same kind of erosion due to the, the emphasis on self hap- mm-hmm. happening even at the, at the level of um, being a member of a nation state. Uh, and so these means by which people used to find their identity are now no longer the case. And so, um, so f- to put it another way, 
it used to be the case where someone might identify themselves, say, um, when someone asks, hey, who, who are you? You would say, well, uh, I'm Denton Ice, uh, son of David Ice. Uh, I'm a, a Southern Baptist, and I um, am an American, you know? Those might be key identity markers that right. you would give someone to identify, to demonstrate who you are and, and right. what makes you you and, and, and describes right. yourself. Um, no longer are those key identities, key um, key markers for people when, when constructing or explaining their identity. Um, so the question then becomes, well, with those things being gone, what's going to take its place? Yeah. What is your identity going to be found in if it's not these things? Because something is going to take its place. Right. You will, when someone asks the question, who are you, have an answer that is more than just your name. Yeah, and this ought to be a concern for everyone because um, institutions are simply uh, groups of people who have gotten together for a purpose, and we are hollowing out most of our institutions. And as a person who has grown up pretty individualistically and pretty much looking at institutions going, I don't know if that even matters, I am concerned. Uh, this qualification is, is very concerning to me. I've actually listened to another podcast where Yuval Levin talks about, uh, he wrote a book about this recently, and, and listen to this. Uh, he says, institutions, Carl Truman says this, quote, institutions are no longer authoritative places of formation, but platforms for performance. And social media compounds this. Okay, uh, why does that matter? These places used to be designed, say, to produce, a, the, say, the American high school used to be a place to produce a competent citizen who could attain to some level of education and then be of use. Um, think about uh, the United States Senate. Used to be a place where people went in order to produce legislation so that we had laws that people viewed were just. If we were to ask, okay, but do you think anybody in the United States Senate is now using the Senate as a means uh, to increase their own personal platform so that they could have something to gain from it. Um, I, I just, I don't think I know anybody who would go, oh no, that none, none of that's happening. Right. You can plainly see that because of our current circumstances, all of these, all of these institutions are so vulnerable to no longer be about developing a certain outcome or a certain kind of person or a certain job even. I mean, we should be asking as Americans, literally the Senate and the House of Representatives were designed to produce laws so that our country can be just. Mm -hmm. uh, are they doing that? Mm -hmm. And if not, do we need to do something about that. If it is more about let people who use it to create their own platform, uh, we have got to change that because all that is, it's just a big rat race. If that's all that we're doing, then it is, it is just bean counting. It's just, who's getting points today? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't sound like a system I want to be part of. That's very concerning. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. Here's the question, though. Here's the question, though. And, and you know, this necessar isn't necessarily the exact track we're planning on taking, but um, is there any going back from that at this point? Because you're right. That's where we're at. We are at a point uh, of individualism reigning supreme. Right. And that even coming into the public sphere. So you've got rather than a bunch of American politicians, maybe divided mm -hmm. from one aisle to the other, yet uh, largely a sense of unity around the idea of America as a nation um, and the calling that they have come to, 
together to, to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And that's, as you said, and I agree with you, that's not really the case anymore. I think what you've got is a collection of individuals coming with their individualistic mm-hmm. self, um, kind of self-actualized purposes yep. Yep. and seeking to perpetuate those yep. and bring those to fruition. Yeah. Is there any coming back? For so them? I think there's only two things you can say. And one is, uh, set deadlines and enforce them and say, you know, if, if there is not, uh, certain amount of legislation is done, for instance, with say your elected representatives. But then too, the other thing that we're doing is, uh, speak to individuals and say, look, what you're doing is not going to work. You're frustrated, but you're frustrated in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. You're asking for things that don't exist. I mean, one of the most powerful things I ever read was in mere Christianity when C.S. Lewis says, look, what if in your desire for happiness, you're asking, say, I want ultimate fulfillment without God. It doesn't exist. It's not there. Mm-hmm. It, it, and that's, you've got to realize that God doesn't. I mean, the answer to the thing that a lot of people have heard about, could God lift a rock or invent a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? Yeah. No, he can't. You know why? Because that doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not, it's not a thing. You think it's a thing because your mi- mind does backflips. But, and God also, if what your happiness is, is I need everything. I need my entire list of desires to be met right now. Okay, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're a very small thing with a very uh, big laundry list. So, no. And even that, you're just wrong. You would have a new list tomorrow. You'd be unhappy by tomorrow and, and your new list. You know how to perpetuate your own unhappiness. And that's something we don't realize about ourselves. Um, so, no. I mean, and that's, that's, that is the Christian reality. That's, that's what Christians believe. That, look, you're, if you're saying, I want happiness without God, yeah, it's not there. It doesn't exist. It's not. It's like saying, I want, I want, to, I want to not be thirsty anymore, but I don't want any water. I don't want anything that composed of water. Yeah, yeah. It's not there. What you're asking for is not within the realm of possibility. Yeah. You're asking, you're actually asking for a negative. You're asking for something that doesn't exist. And we don't get those things. Yeah. They don't turn up. You, you look for them. Things that don't exist, you're not going to find them. Yep. I think that's right. I think that's, you know, it's just a difficult question to, to ask and to answer is how, how can we combat this? How can we come back from this? Because, um, even when you think about what is required to have a, a civilization, to have a nation, you know, we're, we're in the realm of, of nations at this point. Um, what is required? Well, there has to be some base level of understanding of what it is that we are united around, what yeah. it is that makes us Americans. And we are nowhere near being on the same page right. uh, with regards to that. Yep. Um, and that's almost anyone, even... You know, when you when you ask people what it is that that makes uh, an American an American, uh, you can't even get a, a, a answer on that from everyone that is that yeah. is close to the same. And so, certainly, when you begin talking about the principles that make America great, um, if you think America's great, that's another question. You know, um, what are the principles that we ought to unite around? There is no unified answer, not even close. There's you you will get all kinds of answers, and so the question then becomes. How can we come together um, in support of these things to to perpetuate an idea if we none are sharing the same idea as far as what should be perpetuated? Right, and what you're pointing to is pretty much this whole next section, which we can summarize. He talks about the loss of sacred order, which we have lost. He says, quote, cultures have traditionally justified their moral orders, the set of values by which they organize themselves and regulate behavior by appealing to a sacred order and the traditions rooted in that order. So, for instance, if you were in ancient Sparta, 
there was a Spartan law code, and it was handed by the Oracle at Delphi, and it was a way of behaving. It defined what is honorable. So, for instance, uh, courage would have been defined as worthy to be held up as a pattern. So then you encourage courage, and you shame uh, cowardice. Mm -hmm. And that's how that works. And what's strange is we're doing this. We, we live still in a world where we encourage certain behaviors and then we shame other behaviors. Yeah. And that's how morality works. Yeah. But there is the assumption, oh, well, everybody should naturally want to encourage what I encourage and shame what I shame. That's not clear anymore. We don't share. We're, we're very far apart in different places on what things should be encouraged and what things should be shamed. And literally, in a lot of cases, we're at polar opposites mm -hmm. about that. And that is an explanation of why we have this problem. Uh, in the past, societies have been ordered around things like the Oracle at Delphi or the Torah, the Bible, the Koran, and these things. But without this, what do we have? Really, what we have is whoever shouts the loudest. Yeah. That's right. Because all it organizes things, the earliest. Yeah, that's right. Because all of those things that you just said, um, they all appeal to a higher moral order, right. a higher moral um, structure. And if you eliminate all of that, there is no higher moral standard. There's no right. um, being or authority that we are called to, to uh, submit to then it is left up to, like you said, whoever shouts the loudest, right. whoever organizes the best, whoever has the most names on their petition. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's not a good place to be. Right. And, and so certainly we're arguing for um, rational argument, for consideration of where wisdom is, uh, not just loud shouting and uh, organizing to strike first. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is... That is better. That is, yeah. uh, that is the statement. That it is better to consider and argue with, uh, with care, with, with as much wisdom and uh, respect for truth as you can, that, that this is what human thriving looks like, and we ought to go towards it. Yeah. And that, it's a part of why, you know, I'm, I'm, like I've, I've said multiple times, I'm not a philosopher, um, but one thing I do know is that it is uh, my tendency is to want to appeal to scripture. And honestly, I think that's a good tendency. I think it's good for us as Christians to appeal to scripture, even though we hear people around us saying, well, you're, you know, you just, these are just biblical arguments. These are just, um, arguments based in your Christianity rooted in, in your, your worldview. And it's kind of like, yeah. And your arguments are rooted in your worldview. Right. And there, I think we, even as Christians can be tempted to think, well, we need to come with, uh, come up with good moral arguments, uh, without, appealing to God because that's not an that's not something the world accepts as an argument that's appeal that appeals to God. But my answer is absolutely not. I don't have to. They can reject my arguments all day long. They can deny it because they don't like the moral authority that I'm appealing to. But I'm appealing to a moral authority the same way they are. The difference is mine is God, the mm -hmm. God of the Bible. Theirs is themselves uh, yeah, so oftentimes. And I mean honestly on that I think uh, I would take it typically take a both-and position because you see this in the book of Acts that Paul stands at Mars Hill and he says, look, you guys think there are many gods. I want to tell you about this one here that you're not sure about, that you're wondering how we could make him happy. I'll tell you how to make him happy. Mm -hmm. um, that that we can, look, we do believe as Christians that we know uh, what human flourishing looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a powerful thing. It's, it's, yeah. it's powerful to have an idea of what a real human is, what a fulfilled human might be. Mm -hmm. um, and especially... 
Look, uh, part of the problem that I see is you are seeing, I mean, I'm seeing, uh, it, it's such a concern right now. In the last six, seven years, you're seeing uh, a dramatic, like a double, uh, double the rate of uh, suicide, depression among young girls in particular, say age uh, 13 to 19. And you need to ask what's happening there. Uh because we are on a certain track and if it's not working, we need to ask some really hard questions about what is happening, what we're doing. Um, that this is a real concern. Some of this stuff has to tie to social media, but some of it is just as simple as everybody's always had ideas about what human flourishing might be. And, uh, I think we're on the wrong track with some of these and it, and it comes to the most serious of consequences when it comes to our children, when it comes to, uh, the fact that, uh, this is one of those ways that, you know, I always do struggle when I hear, you know, surveys about depression because people use depression in dramatically different ways. Sure. Um, some people will say, you know, I'm oh, just having a bad day today. I think I'm kind of depressed. Well, look, if this is just like a, you know, one of your days uh, of the week and that it can pretty much be measured by your other days. If it's not so dramatically different from your other days, you probably shouldn't use the word depression. These these words are important. They mean something. If you haven't felt good in months, okay, that, that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but I say that to say that one of the dangers about surveying people is they don't use words and people don't use words the same person to person. But when you begin to see things like suicide rates and cutting and self harm, um, that's, that's a behavior. Yeah. And that's measurable. And it, is, and it indicates uh, it indicates how far a certain problem has gotten. And we're there. Yeah. I mean, those, those rates, uh, you can measure it in any way that you want. We have a problem. Yeah. What The track that we're on is not working for a lot of people. And, uh, and that's, that's a concern. I, I hate that. And uh, as a person who's worked with young people a long time, uh, I can see it. I can see, um, I can see the stress, the, the fact that uh, for a lot of them, they don't have an outlet and that there are some of these things that look, if, if you have a young person who doesn't know what it means to be disconnected from the internet, you got to figure that out. Yeah. So you would, you would, if I understand what you're saying correctly, you would say we argue from scripture, from the Bible with that as our moral starting point, but we also yeah. to back that up, say human flourishing supports these ideas. Sure. This yep. is what's best for human flourishing. And yep. we see that, um, lived out in the world around us yep. and that these other things do not lead to human flourishing, but lead to uh, pain and suffering and yep. and worse things. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's totally fine to say, look, yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming from. I mean, but I, I, I don't have to just say to you, the Bible says it, and that's the only thing I have to say about that. I mean, there, we have a lot of resources, mm-hmm. and so that's just really helpful that way. Yeah. We got uh, just a, a little bit more of this section here. As far, far as how we got to where we stand on kind of... Um, what we're doing with community and, and how the family has changed. I thought this summary that he had was uh, pretty powerful. He says, quote, in the world of the 1800s, if a man wanted to have sex with a girl, it was risky for her because it might lead to pregnancy. Marriage was the answer, and the way to get a girl to marry you was to be clean, have a job, to be able to offer security, and prove that he was the kind of man who would stay in the marriage when children came. And this changed with the birth control pill. And we still live in sort of the new world of the pill. Yeah. Uh, and even if you feel like the pill is, is old, uh, it, it's not so old that we've really taken stock of what it's done to us as a society. Yeah. He says, uh, quote, traditional morality was substantially subverted with the arrival of Internet pornography. 
Now, the Christian idea is that sex is the seal on a unique, interpersonal, lifelong, exclusive relationship between a man and a woman, and therefore has meaning only in the context of that relationship. This is really insightful to me here. Yeah. Roger Scruton says this, quote, pornography is about bodies, not faces. If sex is just about my pleasures, anybody will do as a partner. Yeah. And that is, that is really powerful to explain mm-hmm. a part of what we've lost. Yeah. So he, he sees our, our condition as it is now and how it's been developing. And all of these things as far as the undercutting of institutions and the removal of those as, as a part of central to identity, while at the same time, the psychological self becoming the center of our identity and the specifically the sexual self becoming central there, uh, then you add into that these two things that he points out, contraception, the pill, um, birth control pill, and pornography. And they are like, man, they are like, adding a, a, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is. What are the things in a chemical reaction that make it go boom? Like an accelerant. Accelerants, yes. The, these are like throwing fuel on the fire that's yeah. already been been sparked, and it just, um, man, it just shoots the the modern sexual revolution into into overdrive. It's been these things. Uh, and, and namely, now here's the thing, here's the thing, is that, that Jackson and I, uh, I think I can speak for Jackson and say, we're not sitting here saying, uh, to use birth control pills is evil. It is absolutely wrong. There is no possible way that a Christian can can do this if they if they love the Lord. That's not what we're saying. Uh, we are saying that, uh, or what I what I would say at least is that before you use any sort of birth control pill, uh, you should pray and consider why it is that you're making these yeah, sure. decisions that you're making. Uh, are you doing so in accordance with with uh, godly principles? Um, or are you doing so purely out of selfish motivations? Yeah. You know, I think these are all good questions to ask. But what can absolutely be said about the advent of uh, of the pill and the entrance of, of birth control onto the scene is that it was one of the most um, earth-shattering moments of, of disconnecting sex from procreation. Yep. And therefore disconnecting the disconnection of the necessity of marriage before sex right. because the risk was gone, as right. he says. And so with the with the invention of the pill becomes you begin to see this great separation between the two, between sex and procreation. Yep. And and that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. Even as those of us who sat here last time and said, we think sex is a good thing mm-hmm. and sex is enjoyable. Yeah. Um so we know that like the sole purpose of sex is not exclusively procreation. And yet we also acknowledge that to completely divorce right procreation from sex is detrimental to human flourishing. Yep. Yep. And then the final element of this chapter, he talks about the revolt of the elites. He says, quote, elites once held up the status quo as a goal. They passed on faith, respect for the church, patriotism, respect for parents and grandparents, education for citizenship, and a vision of the self that had obligations to others. And this is no longer true on the right or on the left. Uh, And that is what that means is this is all incredibly unstable. Uh, we don't know where we're going. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't pr- particularly think of myself as like a person who just trusts authority all that much. But I can remember when I realized, oh, goodness, nobody knows how this is going to turn out. It's not as if we have uh, the, the gears all in place and that we know exactly how this machine is going to shake out. Uh, and this final throwing off of any sort of protection, which is the people who are overseeing are basically saying, yeah, take it all apart. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a concern. Yeah. 
because uh, no longer is any of this, uh, I mean, I've heard Jonathan Haidt speak about this a lot, and he says you need to understand that in the 1960s when there began a lot of this upheaval, there were a lot of forces that kept our country together. Yeah. Uh, things such as the fear of communism actually keeps a country together, but also shared shared commitments to, well, we're all Americans at the end of the day. We will stand up for freedom. And, and you need to think about how few of these statements that everybody would just check a box and say, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. We just don't have too many left. And Jonathan Haidt says there are plenty of uh, centrifugal forces that push us apart and almost no centripetal forces that bring us together. And that's a concern. Yeah. That, that is a big concern because without those, we don't have cohesion of any kind. And if that sounds fine to you, then by cohesion, you need to understand what I mean is the ability to create any kind of relationships, the ability to go to sleep at night and know that you might wake up the next morning. Uh, you, you have to have social cohesion. Uh, you have to have some degree of trust. Otherwise, this anxiety that I'm speaking about is only going to increase for everyone. And none of us are equipped to deal with endless anxiety. Yeah. We're not. That's very bad for all of us. But that's, that is the track we have set ourselves up on. And at every level, it persists. Yeah. It, it is increasing. It is accelerating. And that's a concern. Um, identity poly politics, identity politics, it fills the universities. Sex, sex education is a topic for our primary and secondary schools. It is, uh, I mean, literally I'm hearing today on news reports about, you know, look, there's a desire to just bring down uh, progressive gender ideology and teach it to kindergartners, first graders. Why are we not teaching them that you never know what your sexual orientation might be and that th these are what all the possible sexual orientations are? And look, this is, um, this is on tap. This is yeah. being spoken about. Uh, and even businesses who traditionally have been yeah. very reticent to speak about these issues because most businesses are about selling some product. But businesses, you know, like Coca-Cola or um, Disney or they, most people can say, oh, I, I hear their political opinions. Literally, yeah. folks, businesses used to not have political opinions because it wasn't very good for them. Right. They just wanted to sell Coca-Cola. Right. Which, believe it or not, is not terribly political. Yeah, well, you wouldn't think so. Uh, but it seems to be becoming more so. Yeah, so, you know, with regards even with that, just recently, just over the past few days, um, Indiana passed an abortion ban. Yeah. Um, and I, I just happened to see it on, on the news, on Yahoo News, I think I've come across. I haven't even looked in yet to all the ins and outs of the abortion ban, so I, I know very little about it. But one of the first things that I heard about it was that there are all kinds of big Indiana businesses yep. that are threatening um, you know, to, to leave or not bring any more business to the mm -hmm. state that basically are just taking firm stances against this legislation against abortion, um, which speaks to exactly what, what he's saying, that businesses are no longer apolitical. For whatever reason, they see it in their best interest um, to enter into the area of politics. And right. man, I don't know if it is or not, but they certainly see that it is. They think it is. And so um, that's kind of the, the direction we're moving. And yeah. Right. And, and so chapter six is the outworking of this. This is the the way that, okay, these ideas, if you have them, um, we have become very accustomed to thinking ideas don't have consequences. So that I, well, look, ideas do have consequences. And some of the ideas that we've presented so far are, look, uh, the common idea has been that authority is located in my inner feelings. 
that I have a certain feeling inside that is the most trustworthy thing, that, that is a popular idea. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that sexuality is my central inner feeling. If there's one thing inside that I can trust to make me happy, it is my sexuality. That this is an idea that's floating around out there to gain popularity. And then third, that this matter should be defended and expressed politically. Mm -hmm. That the venue for this to go forward is in politics. Um, And those are are common statements. I I don't consider those indefensible by any means. In fact, uh, you have to do a lot of work to convince me that... uh, my, some inner feeling of mine is worthy of uh, the word authority. Yeah. Uh, I don't know which of my feelings are tied to the fact that I had chicken on the beach at lunch. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know if I'm in a bad mood because of it, you know it's not sitting well with me, or if I'm just a crabby person. And, and I just look at that, and I, as a person who has a doubtful sort of temperament in a lot of ways, this is a place where it's good for me. Yeah. Like this was one thing where finally in reading the Bible, I went, oh, I can doubt things about myself. Really, what I'm doing here is locating my identity outside of me in God. Well, that sounds wonderful because I have no idea what's going on yeah. with me. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but you know, a lot of, they say that a lot of people forget what it's like to be a teenager. Um, they kind of block it out or uh, whatever you want to say. And, and I certainly didn't. I mean, look, I worked with teenagers uh, for the last 20 years, so I, 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 it's been useful to remember what it's like to be a teenager. Yeah. My goodness, your feelings are not with you. They're not helping you when you're a teenager. They're all over the yeah. place. Yeah. And so I, I find it strange that we've landed here in a lot of ways. Um, but those are, the, those are the major tenets yeah. of expressive individualism. And, uh, and, and believe, widely believed. Yeah. Do you ever, this is a little side side note, do you ever look back, because this happens to me, do you ever see old pictures of yourself like when you were in a high school or middle school and you look at that picture and you remember and realize in that moment that you were like all wigged out about something? You were like oh, yeah. angry or, oh, yeah. or moody or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah, isn't that a funny thing? I, I Emotional see, overload, yes. yes. I see pictures of, of myself and I'll be like, man, I was acting like a crazy person in that yep. picture. Like I remember being all hopped up and excited in that picture. I'll see other pictures and be like, oh yeah, I remember being in a weird mood in that picture. And, and even thinking back, it's like, I don't know why I was in such a weird mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see that in, when you look back at yourself. And so I can see why we blocked that out. <laughs> yeah, oh, I can I can believe it, though I just don't have any common experience of it. I just, um, I can't explain exactly why, but as much as, yeah, I can look back at that and go, that was horrible I yeah. mean, that's tumultuous one of the things i've told teenagers the entire time i worked with teenagers was look people who tell you that the best years of your life are say high school or what no 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 no, no. that look there's some good things but it is just a really rough time it, oh, yes. it you feel you feel like you're on top of the world and then you feel like you want to crawl under every desk yes. that you see like yes. and this is how you just vary between those places you yeah. you feel like you're having a blast and then you feel so angry you could punch a wall, which most young people do uh, yep. from time to time. From it's time just time. so you're so overloaded with emotions. It, it is very difficult. Yep. And it, and it doesn't take much. doesn't take much. Yep. Yeah. I have another story. Do you have time for one more story? Of course, yeah. There's a funny story about whenever I was a teenager. I was like um, look, looking down the barrel of freshmen in high school or something like that. I was like 13, 14 years old. And the Wesleyan church that we were going to at the time – um, the youth pastor there played this game. Uh, she would do all kinds of, of games. She was pretty creative, um, and so uh, she would come up with these these games and whatever. And she was playing this one game one time 
where she would put a picture of someone's like, um, like feature. So like someone's ear or someone's eye or someone's chin, right? She'd put it real big, like zoomed in on that particular body part on the projector screen. And then everyone Hilarious. in the audience would try and guess, okay, who is that person in the youth group? You know? Only a youth minister would do this. Yeah, man. yeah. And and <laughs> maybe you already see some flaws with this game, but but there was this one particular nose that came up. And so I think the game we were playing was Know That Nose. And uh, who, who knows the nose, something like that. And I'm sitting next to my friend Mark, and this nose pops up on the screen. And in case you are unaware, uh, youth groups are full of very greasy, very acne-ridden faces. <laughs> So this nose pops up on the screen with just this giant red and yellow zip oh, right no. up there on the on the tip of the nose, just poking out to the side, and and uh, that pops up on the screen. Everyone laughs, and my my buddy Mark leans over to me and says, "I don't know whose nose that is, but they got a big old zit." And uh, the camera zooms out, and lo and behold, there's my face right there on the screen. Uh, with my big old zit right on my nose. Oh, goodness. You want to talk about wanting to crawl under a table. Yeah. There has never been a moment in my life when I've wanted to, yes. to uh, crawl under a table so much as that moment right there. And my, my buddy Mark looked over and goes, oh, I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> yeah. But man, teenage years are just full of weirdness like that. Yes. And uh, you know what? I survived. And I think I've got a good sense of humor for it. <laughs> right. right. Man. Rough. Um, and so we just have a few more things to say about this. I mean, one is, uh, what is a person? We're more than biology. We're more than cells and, and more than, uh, you know, pimply noses and all of that. Uh, we are, we believe we are tied up with people and places and actions and events that have shaped us. Uh, so some of what we are is social. Some of what we are is tied in with the people who have been put in our lives. And that's, that's a good thing, uh, though we don't often take stock of that. Look, yes. I mean, as he says, he says, well, we, we choose part of what we become, but not where we are born. We choose to keep certain relationships, but not to start most of what we start. Uh, we feel intuitively, we feel free, but how free are we? A lot of what we experience is not determined by us. Mm -hmm. It really isn't. So that's, I mean, teenagers are a great example. Every generation comes with a new attitude or form of dress, but is, is it not similar to other teenagers that it, <laughs> it has you know, freedom and self-expression and I'm just going to be yeah. different. I'm going to be different like everybody else. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Every, almost every teenager has at least a phase of, of rebellion and they rebel by doing things like all the other teenagers right. around them are doing, <laughs> which is so funny because right. he, he points out that as much as we desire freedom and, and self-expression, we also have a need and a yearning and a desire for belonging. Right. Uh, and that will always exist um, no matter how individualistic we become. And this is why the rise in the way community is being expressed now, this is a part of what explains that. Because now, what? when do we hear the word community? We hear it all the time. You, you've got things like the um, African-American community, the LGBTQ community, the... Um, gaming community yeah uh you you just name it even some churches have community groups yeah am i right yeah uh, and i yes and this is exactly where you've got to see that what we are doing is substituting there the word community for what mostly is a network that this just means yes there's a shared communication and certainly shared values might pop up out of that. But I mean, what I'm defining as community is what the Bible defines mm -hmm. as, as community and, and fellowship where you have shared joys and shared struggles. Look, if what you notice with your friends is when you're up, they're there. And when you're down, when you're sick or when things are falling apart, they're not there. You don't have community. 
you might have uh, an acquaintance, but you don't really have uh, what what we want, which is fellowship, yeah. which is the sharing of joys and sorrows, or the ups and the downs. Uh, that's what you want. Yeah. And you, you need that. Yeah. The, the way that God says we can get it is through him, through the commitment to him means new life. And then he defines life and he says, look, life means you're with people whether they're down or up. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want. Yeah. I, I agree with you to, to a point, at least, um, where you can never have true biblical community if you're not actually together. Yeah. Um, this is why we as a church, we don't take communion over live stream. Right. right. And we encourage people, no, communion is not to be taken uh, right. over live stream. We don't even take it in small group settings. We are called mm-hmm. to take it together as right, a community right. of believers, um, specifically the church. Um, but so I, I think I agree with you in that what those other communities are is a cheap substitute mm-hmm. for the real. Um, but at the same time, I do think with the ability that we have now through social media and the internet to, and, and other technologies to feel so connected to events, it's, which is a part of why yeah. um, someone in, well, for example, um, and he points this out in the book, the riots in 2020 uh, mm-hmm. surrounding the the police action um, in uh, Minneapolis, where you had the the death of George Floyd at the hands of uh, Derek Chauvin, this Minneapolis police officer, uh, this tragic event that's that certainly rocked a community. Yeah. But what do you see? You see not only riots here in the United States, but even as far as um, over in, in in Britain, like these yeah. these riots and things that are taking place there for the same issue there. We do as human beings have what is somewhat of a remarkable ability to. Um, to uh, empathize with people and struggles. If we identify with that community, we do have the ability to empathize and to feel connected to those people who are miles and and miles and miles away, who otherwise we would have zero connection to. We wouldn't have the option to find or consider ourselves a part of their community, Mm -hmm. but technology has created it so that we can. And so I think there are aspects of good and right community that you can gain right. through these means, but never to the fullest extent. It is a it is a sort of what's well, it? It's a cheap substitute for the real thing, like I said. Before. Right, and I I have discovered that um, when you establish community in person, some of this can be maintained when someone moves away, and that that is one strength yes. of what we have. Uh, in in some cases, I've developed a friendship with someone that uh, I've met through the internet. Mm-hmm. Still less strong if it's yeah. not driven by in person. And so, it, I look at it and I, and I just encourage um, question in your own mind what it's good for, what it can do, and what it can't do. Because um, I don't, I I am thankful that we have certain powers and certain abilities. I'm thankful that I can keep up with people that, you know, look, I would have completely lost touch with if we lived, say, 100 years ago. Um, and this is all summarized in what I I mistook. He, he uses this phrase, Carl Truman, uh, imagined communities. And I didn't know what he meant by that. But he says, look, he says, quote, nation states are to some degree a sort of imagined community. Yeah. Uh, this means a sense of belonging that is tied to identity, not necessarily knowing everyone who is a part of the community. And I thought, oh, okay. It, it is, and there are yeah. plenty of imagined communities. There are all kinds of communities that are more defined by ideas. Yeah. And shared values. Right, yeah. than they are by physical proximity. And you mentioned yeah. some of these, but he mentions you know, the disabled community or the LGBTQ community, yep. anti-racist, gamers, etc. Uh, 
race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality determine much of our identity now, where in the past, national, religious, familial, geographic, or even physiological people, you had community just because there weren't other people to have community with. Right. Like that's the only people available. That used to be the way that it was. But we now have so much choice. Yeah. That we seem to be overestimating what that choice can do for us. And that's a part of the problem. It becomes a community buffet where, Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't, um, form community based on who I'm around. I form, form community by thinking selfishly about the interests I have, the things I'm, I desire and, and the needs I want met. And then I look around, look for that community online or wherever. And I identify with that community now. And so, um, so even community becomes selfish and that, and self focused in that, in that reality. And so, yeah, even community becomes a thing that perpetuates, uh, the the self and and a very unhealthy version of the self yeah yeah uh he he says there's a rise in networking as there's a decline in belonging and real relationship and look when i went to seminary at first i i was very thrown off by um there were just plenty of people who i could tell were sort of getting to know me from the mindset of networking like we could be of mutual benefit to each other and frankly i just kind of went i don't even know what you're doing right now like i, I don't i don't want to do this i know I can't create a relationship on those terms. I don't, I don't, I don't get that. Um, and look, I, you know, networking, uh, some of it, it's, it's just easier for me to get my head around it. I've met plenty of people who we work with or we do the same job as, and I'm happy to know them. But in this sort of very contrived setting, I just didn't get it. Um, he really puts an exclamation point on this. I thought, I, I agreed that this is a really strange phrase that we just hear in our times. He says, Consider the strange phrase, he pledged allegiance to the Islamic State online. Yeah. How in the world does that work? And how would you explain that to someone, say, even 50 years ago? How would you possibly? Well, you know, a radically different religious idea with a radically different uh, idea of how to apply that uh, that religious idea uh, happened through a completely disconnected form uh, on the internet, which is just a, a means of conveying videos or words, uh, pictures. That is, that we live in that. Nobody's quite figured out exactly how that works or if this is good. <laughs> if right. we really know where this is all going and what should be done about it. Yeah. So the, here, here's kind of, if I could kind of bring this around full circle and say, all of we've identified a lot of the problems here. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't going to be able to give... Uh, specific answers to each one of the problems that we've that we've presented here. But what we can say is that what we see in the world around us is a desire for community. We see that, and but what we also see is the world desperately desiring to have community that centers around them and their desires and themselves. This is distinctly different than the community of the church, the community of saints that we as believers uh, are are given by God as a as a grace uh, and are called to and, and called to with a purpose. We are called to, as you said, die to ourselves. And the community of believers, that being the church, is one that requires togetherness, one that requires us to put the needs of others before ourselves, but also one that is um, that is miraculously and supernaturally um, bound together by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. that we are uh, one in Christ Jesus. This is a community um, organized around something unlike any other. Uh, to where we truly can see the picture of what it looks like, and we see it in Jesus Christ. 
uh, as Paul writes to the Philippian church and how they ought to humble themselves, consider one another's uh, more than yourself, humble yourselves the way Christ humbled himself, who uh, poured himself out uh, even to the point of death on a cross. Yeah. Um, and, and all of this, as, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, to bring us uh, to unity with one another and with him. Yeah. Um, this is what true community looks like. All other means of community, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see it, but community that there are out there pale in comparison to the community of the saints, the yeah. community of believers uh, that is the church. Yeah. Um, and and I mean that in both the universal and local church setting, that it is uh, it is unmatched, and everything else is a cheap representation of it. Yeah. I mean, and, and to kind of tie this up, like what, okay, what is on the ground? What does this mean? Like, what are we trying to do here? Well, look, uh, what a a challenge like love your neighbor as yourself means is first know your neighbor. Mm. I mean, just meet them. Know that it matters if you learned their name. Uh, know that it matters if you took a cake over them. If you did anything that is a step towards face-to-face community, uh, know that it's better to keep one of those annoying uh, kind of social media acquaintances that maybe they do say things that you don't agree with. But do you want to live in a world where you kind of think everybody agrees with you when you when they don't? Uh, or can, can you maintain some relationships with people who might disagree with you? Um, seek to have more unplanned conversations. You know, say something to that person who's sitting across the way from you in the restaurant. I mean, remove weekly one of the times where you do a solitary activity, like like watch a show by yourself, and make it a shared activity. This is just the direction that we need to move. I mean, look, this is this is borne out. I read just a, a few months ago that if you want to know a way to keep from aging, if you want to know a way to keep sort of a, a elasticity or, or like a presence of mind in your brain, it is it is documented that one way to slow aging is to have conversations with different people so that you don't know what someone's going to say when you say something to them. That in fact, one of the things that is, we've especially had lots of unfortunate case studies of during COVID is people who are isolated and can predict everything that will happen in their day that they shut down. Because if your brain is not challenged with unpredictability, you lose pathways, you diminish in your capability of interaction. And that's, um, that is a, a sad a- aspect of our times, but one that we can learn from and say, I don't want to program my life. Mm-hmm. I, don't want, I don't want to know exactly what I will do. Uh, this is a Thursday, right? I, know. I don't want to exactly know the way my next Thursday will go. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get there. That's not my goal. That is not the ideal that I'm striving for. And I, I hope that we can all strive for something different than that. That's why I come knock at your door at 3 a.m. Uh, every so <laughs> often, just so I'll keep your brain kind of loosey-goosey. Yeah. And, and, and man, do I always say I appreciate that? Yeah, always. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's right. That's why it's always good when the, when the church alarm goes off, right? Right across the parking right. lot. You're woken up to that in the middle of the night. Right. I always know something's going on. You may de- make sure you praise the Lord next uh-huh. time that happens. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> All right. We've, we have gotten through two chapters today. We are, uh, well, uh, more than halfway through the book and so uh, we're looking at that but uh, appreciate all these uh, insights that we are, are able to look at and uh, I hope that we can approach a, a better um, a better goal for what it is to be a full human it's not the easy way but it's, it's the better way mm-hmm.
That's right. That's right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. This has been Empire. Em, this has been Empires of the Future. You're fired from ever. Oh it. no. <laughs> and we'll see you in the future. <laughs>